whatever you do, don't fall asleep. I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. It's the 1980s with the Literary License Podcast retrospective of 80s horror films with your co-hosts Joe Radazzo, Vicky Ray, John Wilson, and Keith Shago keeping everything tubular and rad. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. They'll say. She wouldn't even I'm your number one fan. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Literary Literary License Podcast. And if I'm sounding a little strange, because it's not Keith Chago hosting today, <laughs> it's Joe Rendazzo. I'm here with Vicki Ray. Hi, everybody. And we're joined by our special guest, uh, writer, director, producer. He's worn many hats. He's worked with some of the greats and has had a long, illustrious career, Mr. Sam Irvin. <laughs> Great. I'm so happy to be here, Joe and Vicky. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you for coming on. Um, well, I guess how, how, I, how I found out about you, I mean, I, I've seen the Oblivion movies because I, I was a kid running around the video store and um, I watched the two Oblivion movies and Magic Island because I used to rent Full Moon stuff all the time. And... Um, I, a couple, about a year ago or, or so, I commented on something that either Tim Lucas or David DelVal or one of those horror historians uh, had posted, and you commented on it. You, you responded to one of my to one of my comments, and I was like, Sam Irvin, that name sounds familiar. I looked I looked you up, and it's Elvira's Haunted Hills, yeah. Oblivion, Out There, all these movies that I that I just absolutely loved, and I thought I need to friend this guy. I need to see if I could pick his brain a little bit because I grew up loving some of your movies and um, what That's I discovered. So about, <laughs> yeah. Well, what I discovered about you is that you're also very cool to your fans. You're, you're constantly mm-hmm. engaged with them online. You're constantly doing giveaways. And uh, you are. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. You are as far as people, as far as, you know, working directors, filmmakers with their fans, you are so really cool to everybody, and I just <laughs> want to publicly thank you for that because That's you can totally important. ignore people, and you don't seem to do that. You seem to be totally oh down to very, very cool with people. And it's so, I, it's so important to do because fans appreciate it so much. 
Well, I appreciate all of the the love that I get from from all of the fans and followers and stuff. And I had on Facebook a couple years ago, somebody, I mean, I'm pretty tongue in cheek on my Facebook page all the time. And somebody said, you know, you know, you should have a name for your followers. You know, Lady Gaga has little monsters and the Grateful Dead have the deadheads and Mary Manilow has the fanalos and you need a name for yours. And I said, well, you know, my favorite name of all is Benedict Cumberbatch's followers are Cumberbitches. <laughs> and so, so then I decided I'm going to hold a little contest on Facebook. And I asked people to submit ideas. And somebody recommended Sandwiches. That's what <laughs> that was all about. Cumberbitches. <laughs> and I thought Sandwiches was hilariously perfect. And we spell witches because I'm a horror kid, a monster kid, as W I T C H E S. So it's sandwiches, and those. So that's so I'm in love with my sandwiches, as we call them, and uh, and it's I, I I just I love going to conventions and engaging with everybody. I mean, I'm a monster kid like all the rest of us, and started out, you know, as the the kid with famous monsters of film land and, and every Aurora model kid and, you know, all the, all the tropes. I, I, I was there and uh, I did my own horror fanzine as a kid called bizarre. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm just a kid in the candy store with all this stuff and can't believe that I've been lucky enough to direct some of these, these movies that are such labors of love. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a horror geek, and totally own it. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I mean, I, I, I grew up with, with, with that stuff kind of a couple decades later, I grew up with a lot of it on the, um, what, what a lot of the Aurora monster kits and stuff were being reissued in the nineties. That's when I was buying them. And I was yeah. buying old issues of famous. You're, you're not as one. ancient as I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you he's don't a baby right now because he's, he's not as ancient as I am either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just turned 40. You, you tell my knees they're not. You're still a kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, I turned 65 this year and I joked that that's 18 Celsius. <laughs> that is I a good way of feel, looking at it. Perfect. I feel you're, 18 for sure. You're and, 18. Uh, yeah. but, but I was growing up, you know, I grew up in the 60s. So I was there for all the, you know, famous monsters. First, I mean, I've subscribed and the Aurora kits and all that stuff was coming out right when I was a kid. I mean, it was just, it was fantastic decade to grow up in and all the, you know, shock theater on TV showing all the old universal films. And that's how I discovered all those. My dad was um, owned a movie theater. So I was really spoiled in that sense in that I could get in free to all the movies and he would let me, even from the age of like 12 or 13, I was booking kitty matinees on Saturday morning and it was always horror movies. And it was all the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies, which I later spoofed in Elvira's Haunted Hills. It was all the yeah. Hammer films. It was, <laughs> that was major you know, spoofage of Hammer. You could know yeah. as soon as I was watching that, it's like, oh, wow, this is all hammered out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, Elvira's Haunted Hills, for sure, is the most fun I've ever had oh, like, making a movie, a movie because it, 
it just was, and and I got, you know, it was, it was really a spoof of those Vincent Price, you know, like Pit in the Pendulum, mm-hmm. House of Usher, Tomb of Legia, Haunted Palace, all of those, especially in addition to Hammer and everything else. And, and even the Fearless Vampire Killers is in there with, with um, Elvira in the bubble bath, like Sharon Tate was yeah. and stuff. Yeah. We, um, but I, you know, I, both Cassandra Peterson, who's Elvira and I both, were major Vincent Price fans as kids. Her very first horror film that changed her life was The House on Haunted Hill. And the first horror film that changed my life was The Pit and the Pendulum. And we later, you know, got to know Vincent Price. She got to know him and would appear on talk shows with him. And he came on her show, Movie Macabre in the 80s and stuff. And I met him well, I started writing to him. I met him in London and met him several more times. Then I developed a film project that I was going to direct that was scripted by Brian Clemens of the, Aven- the Avengers TV series fame and Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, fantastic writer. And um, it was going to star Vincent and his wife, Coral Brown. And of course, you know, we could never get the financing together and it never happened to my dismay. But, um, but you know, I got to know he and Coral through that whole process. And, and it, it was just a really meaningful part of my life to be able to have gotten to know him for sure. And, um, so we, and so when we did Elvira's Haunted Hills, we dedicated the film to Vincent Price. We, okay. um, the, the Richard O'Brien plays Ca- Lord Helzebus at the castle. And that character is very much modeled after all the Vincent Price characters in those movies. And, and Richard who wrote, oh, who, who was, he was riffraff and Rocky horror, but he also wrote Rocky horror. He wrote the music, the lyrics, the play, the screenplay, when they did the movie, everything. Fantastic, David. And, He's a huge Vincent Price fan as well. So he knew exactly what we were spoofing. And we just had the best time making that movie. It was so much fun. Well, and we yeah. got to build, build the sets from the ground up and, and design them as an homage to the, the Poe films. And um, it was just an amazing thing. And we're celebrating, actually, right now, the 20th anniversary of that movie, and Shout Factory just last month in October of 2021 came out with the um, Blu-ray of the film, 4K restoration. It looks absolutely incredible. Awesome. And we have a ton of extras. And I, we filmed a brand new introduction of Elvira with her red couch and everything, introducing the movie, we, which we shot just a couple months ago. And um Anyway, it's just a really exciting celebration of the movie. And it didn't get distributed very well originally. So I'm really hoping that it's going to, you know, reach beyond the, the cult following that it already has. And, and it seems to be. And, of course, Cassandra, as you probably know, just also released her memoir the same month. And, uh, and it went to number four on the New York Times bestseller list. And there's an entire chapter on the making of Elvira's Haunted Hills. And um, so I, I'm really excited that the synergy of the book coming out and everything, um, and a lot of people will be reading about this movie and maybe you've never heard of it and I'll check it out. And so I'm really, really excited. I have seen a lot of chatter on social media about it as of late. So that is a good sign. But yes. you know what? The funniest part about that whole movie was probably just one of the smallest things, but it was the dashing, handsome uh Fabio kind of guy you had in the yeah. Haunted Hills and how he was speaking, 
you know, yes. you're like dubbing his language. That was just killing me because my husband well, walked in when I was rewatching it. And and he's going, and he kept looking really at it. I go, person. no, I go, he's just, the, it's just, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the, the greatest TV. voice actors working. Huh? That's, that's Rob Paulson, I believe. Rob one Paulson greatest- did the voice. Well, what happened was, just really quickly, so we wanted funny. Fabio to play that role. Of the Did you really? Cut. Yes. That would and have been he, awesome, too. <laughs> he turned it down, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise, because we decided we were already a little, you know, our budget was getting really, really tight. And we were, you know, brought, we shot it in Romania. And actually, yeah. some of the locations were in Transylvania. Oh, cool. And the, um, oh, and before I forget, let me just do a quick little sideline. Cassandra and I are hosting... <clears throat> two tour groups of 40 people each in this coming May oh. to go to Romania and visit all the locations where we shot Elvira's Haunted Hills. I mean, it's insane. Each each tour group is nine days. We're going to do them back to back. So we're going to be there 18 days showing everybody where we shot the movie. Okay. <clears throat> and it's it's and it's going to be incredible. Anyway, check, check that out. Um, uh, I think there's some seats left on the second tour. The first one is sold out. But at any rate, I'm, I'm really excited about that coming you up. Have a credit card, but, Joe. You <clears> got a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We but don't going have to back pay to this, back. we we <laughs> we um, when Fabio turned the roll down of the stable stud, we decided that you know we're already bringing in a number of the other actors. It's getting really expensive. Let's just cast the guy in Romania. Right. So we get over there and we're auditioning guys and there's they're just not handsome enough or the ones that are handsome can't act and or they don't know how to speak english it just nothing was quite right i also wanted a guy with long hair because we didn't have the budget to get a really good wig and i hate guys in wigs that always looks really wiggy and fake and so i just told the casting writer just bring in guys with long hair well, that then this guy walks in the door, Gabriel Andranaki and Cassandra and I look at each other like, whoa, <laughs> and he is the hottest thing and he's exactly what the role needed. And um, but then he starts, he opens his mouth to read the scene and he can't speak English worth a damn and. <laughs> We tried to get him to speak the lines phonetically, and he just, there was just no way. You couldn't understand anything he was saying. And then I just got this inspiration, and I turned to Cassandra, and I said, listen, let's just, we have to have this guy. Let's let him do it in Romanian, and then let's dub it badly, like those Steve Reeves Italian Hercules movies. Oh, my God, (laughs) Steve Reeves movies. Yeah. And and she cracked up and we were like, do you think it could work? And I'm like, I really think it could work. (laughs) And um, we were worried, however, because he has several scenes in the movie and we thought, is this going to be a one joke thing where, you know, it's funny the first time, but then it becomes a groaner. And when we keep repeating it, but when we would show the film um, at midnight shows, because it would it didn't really get much it didn't get any theatrical runs but we took it to festivals and we took and we did midnight shows here in LA and Cassandra and I would go and do Q&As and stuff and we loved sitting through the film because different audiences would laugh at different things and it was just really fun to get that feedback and to know what was funny to people but those scenes with the stable stud got the biggest laughs and they I love that laughs every time all the way throughout. So people weren't tired of it. In fact, as soon as people saw him, 
they would start laughing even before he opened his mouth because they were anticipating that it was yeah. going to be badly dubbed. And um, it was just, it, it couldn't have been more perfect. And Joe, you are right. Um, it, the, the, the guy that dubbed the voices, Rob Paulson, uh, my God. I mean, he is a brilliant voiceover actor who's done a trillion cartoon voices and is just one of the top guys in the business. And luckily, he was a friend of Cassandra Peterson, and she asked him for a favor to come in and do this. And he just killed it. He made it so, so funny. And then we had him do a couple other voices in the film. I don't know if you know. Um in there, there's a little homage to The Shining where at the very beginning, Elvira and her French maid are in this little um, hotel yeah, tavern thing in Transylvania. And the yeah. guy, the landlord, comes through the door with an axe like Jack Nicholson. And he says, here's Johan. And, <laughs> and, and that's Rob Paulson. He dubbed that and, guy's and, voice. Yeah, at and the end, at the, the, um, the, the, ter- the Terry Thomas. Uh, yes. Yes, exactly. At the very end of the film, there's a gentleman who picks them up, uh, who picks Elvira and her maid up in a coach. Just the very last scene. And Jerry was the choreographer uh, and he wrote the song of the musical, the the musical number that happens in the middle of the film. And he was Cassandra Peterson's choreographer back in this 1970s, long before Elvira had even been thought of when she was a performer in Vegas. I mean, they go so way back. It was so much fun to have him there because they're such good friends. And we were, you know, looking for people who could speak English and, and, and actors. And this, we had this one little tiny role. And I said, let's get Jerry to do it. And, and we go to Jerry and he's like, oh, God, I'm, but I'm not an actor. I just don't know. And he said, well, you look perfect for the part. So then we did the scene, and um, yeah, he was right. He wasn't an actor. (laughs) (laughs) And he is the first to admit it. He warned us. And and so I said, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, and we ended up asking Rob Paulson to do a voiceover as Terry Thomas for him. And, And that's what happened. And it worked out perfect. It was, again, it was just the perfect thing. And uh, but I'm so I'm so, still really glad we got Jerry in there. <laughs> Such and uh, for, for those of us who, uh, out there who don't know who Terry Thomas is, he was a great uh, British actor. He's in a lot of uh, a lot of Amicus movies. And actually, I, um, next year I think we're we're all covering uh, our, our our franchises. And I chose the Amicus uh, Portmanteau movies. So yes, uh, we'll be talking he's, about he's in some of those. He's also in both of the Doctor Fives movies, playing yes. completely different characters. And he's the he's the very he's the British comic comic actor. He has the gap in his the big gap in his between his two front teeth. That's his, kind of his trademark. Yeah. And really, really funny actor. Uh, but you'll you recognize his voice I, the second I, it starts to come out of Jerry's I mouth. He's, he's <laughs> the one, I haven't seen Doctor Fives in a little while. I think he's the one that gets killed watching the stag film, right? Yes, that's exactly yeah. right. In the first okay. one. And in the second one, what is he in the second? I think he's, oh gosh, I'm blanking out. But he's in both. He's definitely in both. Um, well, back backtracking a little to the stable stud. I was watching the, um, I was watching the Blu-ray of Haunted Hills with uh, the audio commentary on, and there was mention of apparently him having a jealous girlfriend who was on set at all times. Really? Yes. 
Yes, <laughs> so Ga- Gabrielle had that. a jealous girlfriend. She, she, she was, you know, she. I mean, Elvira, come on. <laughs> she was very yeah. worried about the love scene that we were going to do in the stable. Of course, you know, it's a PG-13 movie. Nothing was, there was going to be no nudity or anything. And, uh, you know, it's just they kind of start kissing and then sink down out of frame. And, you know, that's it. Um, but, yeah, she was very nervous. And so she was, she would be right there <laughs> the whole time. Wow. <laughs> How funny. Um, it was it was cute. It was cute. And backtracking a little to Richard O'Brien, I wasn't aware that he was a big Vincent Price fan. Uh, yes. on the outdoor scenes when he's out in the cemetery, he looks exactly like Vincent Price did in the tomb of Lygia. Yes. So was that more yours or Cassandra's idea? Was that just him paying tribute to his favorite Vincent Price character? It was it was all of us. And and but we knew, I mean, Cassandra and I knew long before we even cast. Richard, that, that that especially that scene was going to be an homage to the Tomb of Legia. And we, before we even left for Romania, we had, we searched high and low everywhere for those horse blinder <laughs> wraparound glasses that Vincent Price wore in Tomb of Legia. Oh, so I love Richard could have those. And, uh, and yeah, we, we had everybody looking all over town and antique shops and everything and literally found we found, luckily, we found two pairs. We found one that was in really good condition and then one that was kind of crappy because at one point he, you know, she slaps him and they, and they fall to the ground. So we, we used the, the crappy ones for the stunt moment. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I was like, I'm not getting on the plane if we don't have those glasses because I was like <laughs> determined. I had to have an homage to to Tomb of Legia. And if you recall, the Vincent Price characters in each of those movies has different sensitivities. Like yeah. in, in right. uh, House of Usher, he can't, you know, his taste, he has to have very pallid, you know, f- food and his taste buds are oversensitive. His hearing, he can, I guess it's in, in Pit and the Pendulum, his hearing is acute and he can hear the scratching of the people who are alive in their coffins down in the sarcophagus oh, and right. he can hear the rats in the walls and, and all of that. And then in Tumul de Gia, he has very sensitive eyesight and, and can't be out in the sun and, and whatnot. So we combined, or I should say Cassandra and the screenwriter, um, John Paragon combined all of those sensitivities into one character for our movie. <laughs> and so he's just sensitive to everything. <laughs> and um, and I, when I was reading the script, I was just cackling because I totally got where every single one of those things came from. And uh, so anyway, we just, we just were all on the same page and just, just a blast. I mean, the way that I got the part, I mean, the, the part, the gig to direct this um, is that Cassandra, I, I had known Cassandra for several years. Um, I met her at a party right after I did my first feature film, Guilty as Charged. I met her at Terry Sweeney's house. He was a regular on Saturday Night Live. He was the first openly gay Saturday Night Live cast member, and he used to do Nancy Reagan and drag. This was back in the mid-'80s or whatever. Yep, I remember And I knew he and his (laughs) husband, Lanier. Lanier and I went to school together at the University of South Carolina. It's all really weird how this all happened. But... I'm at their house for this party and I spot Cassandra and I run over to Terry and I say, Oh my God, it's Cassandra Peterson. I'm such a huge fan. I've got to meet her. Please introduce me. 
And he introduces me and says that I directed, recently directed a film called Guilty as Charged. And it was a, it was a dark uh, comedic thriller, a, a horror movie about a madman played by Rod Steiger who kidnaps murderers and fries them on his own electric chair. And um, so anyway, Cassandra goes, oh my God, I just saw that movie. I loved it. In fact, I've been wanting to meet you because if I ever do another Elvira film, I want to consider you as a possible director for it. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) this is fantastic. Um, So we got to know each other. I I had her do a cameo in in my second film, Acting on Impulse. She didn't play the Elvira character. I had her as a bouncer at a country Western bar where she wore a blonde wig and did kind of a Dolly Parton kind of thing. And (laughs) she cards... Uh, Nancy Allen, Linda Ferentino, and C. Thomas Howell as they enter the bar. Um, and she had a great time. And and we just remained social friends and um, throughout the, the 90s. And t- at the end of that decade, around 1999-ish, she called me up and she said, listen, we, we have tried to get another Elvira film going everywhere in town and nobody wants to do it. So my husband and I have decided we're going to finance it ourselves we're going to mortgage our house and we're going to just do it. And I always promised you that I would consider you as a director and we're, we're interviewing a number of other candidates, but I want you to come up to the house and meet with us. So I went up to their house, a house, which by the way, uh, they later sold to Brad Pitt. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, but so she hands me the script and she goes, this is Elvira's Haunted Hills. It's a spoof of the Vincent Price Poe movies. Uh, are you familiar with those? And I'm like, honey, I, I know those films <laughs> backwards and forwards. This is Vincent Price's monologue from the climax of Pit and the Pendulum. Do you know where you are, Bartolome? You are about to enter hell, hell, the neverworld, the infernal region, the abode of the damned, a place of torment, Gehenna, under rock of the pit, and the pendulum, the razor edge of destiny, thus the condition of man bound on an island from which he can never or hope to escape, surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. And she looked at me like I was absolutely insane and said, you're hired. (laughs) That's how I got the gig. Um, and I had learned that monologue in junior high school. The teacher wanted, uh, did an assignment for, it was kind of a drama thing where they wanted us to recite monologues. And they are thinking like, you know, she was, th- the teacher was thinking, you know, Shakespeare kind of stuff, whatever, very academic. And I'm like, look, I'm allergic to iambic pentameter. And I just had I no interest in that. And I said, can I do Edgar Allan Poe? And the teacher said, okay. And so I raced home knowing full well that The Pit and the Pendulum had very little to do with Poe. It was all written by <laughs> Richard Matheson. But I went home and I, back in those days, this is, this is like the late 60s, I taped on reel-to-reel audio tapes off of television, like holding the microphone up to the speaker I taped movies and I had Pit and the Pendulum on audio tape and I transcribed that whole monologue and learned it and got an A. She never even, the teacher never even, you know, questioned whether this was actually Poe or not. Thank God. (laughs) And, uh, and then um, a couple of years later, I went to see, I met Vincent Price for the very first time. I went to see him play Fagan in a, in a touring company of Oliver that I grew up in North Carolina in Asheville. 
And this was being performed in Atlanta, Georgia, which was a four hour drive. And I badgered my mother to drive me down there to see it. We did. And we went and stood at the stage door afterwards and Vincent comes out and there's a lot of fans and everybody. And when it's finally our turn, I tell him that, you know, oh, I'm such a huge fan. And my dad has movie theaters and we show all your movies and I show your older movies on kitty matinees, you know, did the whole thing. I even brought a flyer that, that had like a Vincent Price sort of retrospective that I was doing every Saturday for matinees. And, and then I said, and I, I happen to know your monologue from Pit and the Pendulum. He said, you do not. And I said, yes, I do. And I recited it to him right there. And the, and the, all the other people who were waiting in line behind me ended up applauding. It was like this moment. And so I definitely made an impression on Vincent Price that day. And, uh, but that monologue, you know, to imagine that like 40 years later, it, you know, would come in handy to get me the job to do this, this love letter to Vincent Price is just, it's incredible to me. It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I obviously still know it to this day. I'll never forget it. That's wonderful. And actually, um, the first thing that I saw that had, uh, apparently when I was a kid in the 80s, I'm in the video store all the time. And according to all my relatives, I used to rent one movie all the time. I used to rent it all. I'm a kid and I can't get through it. But I used to rent The Monster Club with Vincent Price and John Carradine. Yes. Uh, Donald Pleasance and Britt Eklund and Stuart Whitman and the cast. But it was hosted by Elvira. So, right. And it was just something about that front cover with Elvira yeah. with the very colorful movie poster. So, in, in a way, Vincent Price was kind of, and Elvira kind of helped me discover that before I even knew what horror films were, that that's what I was kind of drawn to. Because I'm like eight years old. <laughs> maybe six, seven years old go no that's the movie i want and i was like you just rented that last week and you never watched it and like, like i'll hilarious. start it i'll never finish it but um <laughs> so wow um <laughs> so you mentioned uh nancy allen who was another yes. person who's iconic um you know she's in so many great movies in the 80s uh you worked with her originally on dress to kill i believe is that the first movie you worked the first movie I worked with her on was Home Movies. Um, yeah, when I I was just finishing school at the University of South Carolina. Well, it, okay, uh, it's I I was a huge Brian De Palma fanatic. So when I was in college, I happened to be running the movie theater on campus, and we had a whole film series that was going. You know that we would book and program ourselves. I had a little film committee. And we decided, let's do a Brian De Palma Film Festival. So I looked up in Hollywood Reporter in the production charts that Carrie was in pre-pre-pre-production and they were casting and there was a number for a casting office in California. And I called that number and they put Brian De Palma on the line. <laughs> that would never happen today. No, and, I don't think so. No. And I explained what we were doing. And he said, hey, I'm kind of broke. I live in New York. I really need to get to my apartment to get some things. If you'll give me the airfare from Los Angeles to, to Columbia, South Carolina, where I was going to school at the University of South Carolina, then to New York, so I'd be there for the weekend, and then back to L.A., I'll come for the Triangle Airfare. And I said, done. 
and we had a budget at, with our committee and the, with the money that we made off of ticket sales and our little theater and stuff. And that's how we paid for it. He came out. He had just um, recorded the score for Obsession with Bernard Herman, and he had uh, he had a cassette tape that he played for us of cues from Obsession. And this was that movie didn't come out for this was in November of seventy five, and the movie didn't come out until August of seventy six. So this was many, many, many months before anybody had heard those cues, those of that magnificent score. And he was talking about how he wanted Bernard Herrmann to do the score for Carrie that was coming up and didn't know that the very next month in December, um, right after recording his final score to Taxi Driver for Scorsese, that Bernard Herrmann unfortunately passed away just, just a few hours after the last recording session of that movie. Um, so it was really kind of weird that, you know, we were listening to Bernard Herrmann's cues from Obsession before he had passed away. And uh, whereas everybody else, you know, heard it many months later after he had gone. Um, but I took Brian to film classes and, and to do Q&As at, at some of his films that we were showing. And the climax of the whole thing was going to be this midnight show of Phantom of the Paradise, which I loved. And he, we had everybody come in costume. It was sold out, 300 seats. Uh, Brian, you know, judged the best costume. We had prizes. It, the whole place was pumped. We start the movie. Well, he, we did the Q&A ahead of time, only because it was going to be so late when it was over. Um, so we, luckily, we did the Q&A. Then we start the movie, and there's no sound. I panic. I run up to the projection booth. What? You turn on the sound? Da, da, da. It turns out that the sound bulb was burned out and they, you know, projectionist should have had spares, but didn't. And it was too late to go buy one. And, it, you know, you can't exactly buy those at the 7-Eleven. Um, and so we had to cancel the screening and send everyone home. And I just thought all the goodwill that I built up by meeting Brian De Palma just got flushed down the toilet. However, I was wrong. And this will show you what kind of sardonic sense of humor he has. He thought it was hilarious. And later, <laughs> um, and then I ended up, you know, later working for him as his assistant. I worked on The Fury uh, and then Home Movies. Uh, with Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen and then dressed to kill. And he loved to tell that story when he would introduce me to people and, and to embarrass me, but you know, with, with, with tongue in cheek and, and good humor. And, uh, but it, you know, it made me memorable, I guess. And he, he anyway, he, he loved that story. And so it, yeah. And it just really worked out incredibly well. And when I did the fury, I wasn't working for him full-time at that point. I was still going to school. It was between my junior and senior year during the summer. And, um, and I went up to Chicago where they were shooting, and I worked as his assistant and worked as an extra in the amusement park scene. But I also got a, an assignment from Cinefantastique magazine to do a journal on the making of the film. Now, I've, I would have done the journal for my own fanzine, Bizarre, but I had kind of... Let, I had kind of ended it because I was getting so busy doing these other things with De Palma and, you know, really pursuing my career. But I had gotten to know 
um, Fred Clark, who was the editor of Cinefantastique because of my own fanzine. And Fred was very sweet. He even bought a double page ad in my magazine just to kind of, you know, help support the cause. And so I knew him. And so I called him up and said, hey, listen, I'm going to be working on this film. I know you did this incredible cover story on Carrie, which De Palma really liked. And, you know, can we do a cover story on the Fury and I'll do this whole making up thing? And he said, great, done. So it was like a whole slam dunk. Well, I, it, it allowed me to have one-on-one interviews with Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes and all the important people on the film. And, and I went up to, during my Christmas break where they were editing in New York and got to meet Paul Hirsch, the, who was the editor, who, of course, you know, did Star Wars and just legendary editor. And I even got on the phone with John Williams, who did the score for that movie. I mean, it was just incredible. And and it, without that assignment, you know, to be a journalist, a legitimate journalist, you know, they're not going to, no, you know, nobody's going to pay attention to a little lowly, you know, assistant. Um, so that worked out incredibly well. Unfortunately, when Fred, the, the magazine issue kept getting postponed, um, He ended up because Star Wars came out and Fred Clark went crazy about Star Wars and did this huge double issue. And um, he did run my interview with Amy Irving as kind of a um, appetizer for the Fury in that issue and said, you know, there'll be, you know, a big thing on the Fury coming up. Then he then the movie came out and he saw it and Fred Clark hated it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so he canceled the, the having it as the cover. He still ran the article, but he he cut it down a bit. And um, and then you know I had to go again, go in with my tail between my legs to De Palma and say, well, they canceled the cover. It's just going to be an interior article, and he, he didn't care. It would meant you know he didn't mind uh, it, it, you know. Whereas for me, it was like. I felt the whole world was collapsing. Um, But at any rate, I uh, then became, I was actually on the first time I met Nancy Allen on home movies. um, I was the, it it was a low budget film and Brian had me be the associate producer and production manager and just kind of threw me into the deep end to see if I could swim. And then, uh, and I guess I did okay. Cause then from at that point, then he hired me full time as his assistant and I worked in development and on a whole bunch of projects that didn't get off the ground or he didn't end up directing. But, um, during that time we, he made dress to kill, which I worked on. And then we, I worked for about a year on the development of blowout and right about the time that blowout was going to shoot. Brian wanted me to produce a low budget coming of age movie called the first time that um, another protege of his was going to be directing. And so I went off and we shot that right at the same time they were doing blowout and it had Wallace Shawn, Wendy Jo Sperber, um, Catherine Damon, Tim Choate. It was, it was a really cute coming of age thing. The new line cinema released. And unfortunately, it's kind of a lost film. But we got Bill Finley, who was the Phantom of the Paradise and um, the doctor, Mad Doctor and Sisters. He rewrote the script with his wife. And so there's there's a lot of De Palma connections. And De Palma has a credit on it as creative consultant. He was going to be executive producer. But Bob Shea, who's the head of New Line Cinema, wanted that credit. And Brian was not going to share the credit with him. (laughs) 
no. So yeah, Brian just said, nope, nope. Just credit me as creative consultant. So anyway, that's, that's what happened. Why I didn't actually work on the shoot of blowout. And, uh, and after that, I did a short film uh, that I wrote and directed and produced called double negative and it I was had to ask you about that that was that that was a little known one but yeah. it was actually i heard it was actually very good i went looking for it i haven't found it yet well <laughs> it is on it is part of the extras of the fury blu-ray but it's the european um edition so it's the one that arrow put out in england it's also on the french one um is that your 20 so, minute short that was in sundance yes. okay yep Yep. And it was a, yeah, it was a 20 minute short called double negative. It was about a horror film director making a low budget horror film called coat hanger massacre. And uh, (laughs) it is sleazy producers, Max and Milt named after Max J Rosenberg and Milton Savatsky of Amicus (laughs) (laughs) um, are played by Bill Finley, who is the Phantom of the Paradise and Wayne Knight, who was Newman on Seinfeld. And, oh, uh, wow. <laughs> and they, um, they decide that, that they'll make more money if they steal the negative from the lab and collect the insurance than to actually finish the film and release it. And the director played by Bill Randolph, who played the cab driver in Dress to Kill. And he was also in Friday the 13th part two. He, um, gets wind of this little plot and he and his leading lady, um, have to steal the negative first <laughs> in order to save their film put dummy negative in theirs and then and then they actually filmed the you know the the producers stealing the film so they could blackmail them and and uh <laughs> into finishing the movie and, uh, anyway it's cute and there's a little flashback of the director as this sort of prodigy kid and we've got Justin Henry from Kramer versus Kramer to play the young director. Oh, character. I totally forgot about that one. And uh, so, yeah, it was really fun. And it got it got accepted at Sundance, got a lot of buzz. It, it opened. I did it in 35 millimeter because I wanted it to play in theaters. And it did. It, it opened in Los Angeles with with Martin Scorsese's After Hours. And in New York, it played with um, Emerald Forest, the John Borman film. It got um, reviewed in the New York Times by Janet Maslow and got a really nice review. So that became my calling card, which um, enabled me to get my first feature film off the ground, which was Guilty as Charged. So the long-winded uh, <laughs> build up to, Star- to Rod my... Steiger was a Guilty, guilty yes. as Charged, wasn't he? Gu- guilty as Charged. Rod Steiger, Lauren Hutton, Heather Graham, Isaac Hayes, uh, Zelda Rubenstein of Poltergeist fame. Um, we had an incredible cast and it's very, um, it's very German expressionistic. This, the dungeon sets where he has this electric chair where he fries murderers who've gotten off. And, uh, so it's got lots of horror elements. And one of the reviews compared it, it said it's a cross between James Wales, Bride of Frankenstein and, Robert Fuse, Dr. Fives movies. Well, there couldn't be a bigger compliment in the world for me. I mean, I just about, just about fell out of my chair when I read that. (laughs) I I mean, that could, that could bring us to probably another big film that you're known for uh, the Academy award winning uh, for screenplay. 
And uh, I, I think you were nominated as a producer for uh, of uh, for Gods and Monsters. Mm-hmm. How did well, you, how it, did, did... it did. Yes, I, I was a, I was one of the producers of Gods and Monsters. It did not get a Best Picture nomination, unfortunately. It sh- certainly should have. Um, it got Sorry, three three thing. Oscar nominations for Best Actor for Ian McKellen, Best Supporting Actress for Lynn Redgrave, and then Best Screenplay, which it did win. Uh, for Bill Condon, who did the adaptation from the book by Chris Bram. But Bill also directed the film. It did win some other Best Picture awards in some of the critics' associations, um, like the National Board of Review. My God, we swept the whole damn thing. It was it won Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. It was just wow. incredible. Um Lynn Redgrave won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. And there were lots of other, you know, awards that were showered on on our little movie, which we're all so proud of. Bride of Frankenstein is my favorite film of all time. And James Whale is certainly one of my all-time favorite directors. I'm uh, I'm uh, openly gay and James Whale was gay. I've always identified with him and and his work and especially with Bride of Frankenstein. So in so for those who don't know Gods and Monsters is it's about James Whale in the later um part of his life and Ian McKellen plays James Whale and but there's a flashback scene of James Whale directing Bride of Frankenstein on the laboratory set, which we had to recreate. And I made sure that it was recreated perfectly. And we tracked down some of the original electrical equipment that was designed and created by Kenneth Strickfadden for the original Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein and Mel Brooks had tracked it down for Young Frankenstein. So it has this incredible legacy of appearing in films. It even appeared in a few uh, some, a few uh, Skid Row movies like Dracula versus Frankenstein <laughs> and, and, a, and a few others. But um, but we found it and and it's in there. And man, that was a that was a moment when we were shooting those scenes. I, I just it was a dream come true. Just couldn't believe it. And what a film. I mean, it's just a, an absolute masterpiece. And, uh, you know, I just, and, and I can't believe it's already like 21 year, 22 or three years old now. I mean, it's, um, it, it just feels like it was yesterday. I also um, co-directed the making of that's on the, the DVD. And I guess it's, I guess it's on the Blu-ray as well. Um, that I co-directed with David Scald, who's a well-known horror um, historian and has written many great books. Um, and we were, you know, we shot footage during the making of the film. We interviewed all the actors, but we also interviewed Gloria Stewart, who was still around at that time. Oh, wow. And she had starred in James Whale's The Old Dark House and James Whale's Invisible Man. And she is known by everybody as the the old woman in Titanic. And, uh, but she knew James Whale really well. And so we interviewed her on camera and we also interviewed Curtis Harrington, the director of, of games and who slew Auntie Rue and a bunch of uh, great films. But he was very good friends with, with Whale back in the late forties, early fifties. And, um, 
and you know they were really really close friends uh, curtis was also gay and you know we're uh, curtis was always very very much a gentleman about it but i'm i'm pretty certain that they were romantically involved for a bit um but there uh but anyway that that and also Clyde Barker was one of the producers on on Gods and Monsters and so we interviewed okay. him and so it just was a, a great conglomeration of of people that I admire and uh and and of course Bill Condon's career just exploded after that and he's just been unstoppable there's uh th- there's some artwork that's in that movie like in particular there was one sketch in uh James Whale's bedroom that caught my eye and I'm wondering if a lot of that stuff was created for this or if it was just stuff that like you being a horror fan and I'm sure Clive Barker and all these other guys who were just huge monster kids did you guys just use like stuff that you guys had or had, or was it all just created for the film M- most of that artwork was actually james whale's or- original artwork wow. we tracked down people who owned p- actual original pieces and when we when we couldn't find certain pieces we would recreate as best we could or you know whatever the production designer would do something but but m- most of that was his actual artwork when when whale retired from directing he took up painting and and that's what this film is really sort of centered on those years as as him as as a painter we also just a quick story i mean his we wanted to shoot in the actual home where james whale lived and um i don't you know it's a bit of a spoiler but um it's it's been enough years have passed i guess but you know people know uh generally that James Whale took his own life and his in the swimming pool behind his house, very tragically. Um, but we did find the house. The house had actually belonged to Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell for a while, but not at the time we were going to be shoot. We, we wanted to shoot there, but we went and talked to the owners, and they were not interested in having a film crew in their place. But they um, they said that they would allow us to come and tour it so that we could see what it was like. So we could look for a place that would be very similar and have the same feel, but also we just wanted to kind of soak it up, soak up the atmosphere of the actual place. And uh, so um, we arranged to have a tour and Bill Condon and myself and the production designer and the director of photography and a couple of other people, plus Ian McKellen, who had just arrived from London. And so we're, we all arrive in the driveway, except for Ian, who's coming from the airport or wherever. And, and he's a little late and we're waiting. We don't want to go knock on the door until we're all together and ready to go. And suddenly this like 1940s Jaguar Roadster comes roaring up the driveway and convertible. And Ian screeches to a halt. He hops out of the car, doesn't even open the door just leaps out and he is dressed in these hip hugger bell bottom (laughs) blacks that are, they are patent leather and baby blue. Oh my God. (laughs) Look like they have been bought on Carnaby street in 1969. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, and he was like, Oh, hello everyone. Sorry. I'm late. You know, and, and it was just, we were all dying laughing. It was the funniest image. And 
you know, and I'm expecting, you know, you know, back then, you know, you we now we're used to Ian McKellen on talk shows and we know that he's funny and, you know, all kinds of stuff, but we didn't know. We you're like, we're just thinking this is some, you know, Shakespearean actor who's coming over from England who's going to be very sedate. And, you know, and he just <laughs> completely wiped that image right off the map. <laughs> and that's how he was the whole, the whole movie. He was just a kick. He was so funny and sweet and hilarious. And we, we just all adored him. Was, uh, was McKellen a big, uh, a, a big old school monster movie fan as well? Um, a bit. I mean, I can't say that he, you know, he had to do his research a bit, but he certainly knew of the films and had seen, you know, seen the whale films and that sort of stuff. But I don't think of him as a, a you know, monster kid in the sense that we are. <laughs> yeah. Um. So... Also on on the Frankenstein note, because uh, uh, you had produced uh, a film that um, Ryan Reynolds is in, and recently yeah. uh, when he was doing Deadpool two, there was this funny little video with him yeah. and uh, David Beckham, where David Beckham uh, says something about movies he should apologize for, and he mentions <laughs> Bolt Neck, and Ryan Reynolds <laughs> as Deadpool screeches and go, goes, Bolt Neck was a masterpiece. <laughs> You, I, that is news to me. I, oh, I'm not even aware send me the of video. that. I'll send you the video. It's only like a minute long. Um, oh my God, that's hilarious. Well, it's a, it's a kind of a very obscure lost film, but yes, it was called Bolt Neck. It also went under a bunch of different other titles. Uh, Teen Frankenstein, Monster. Teen Monster, Mon- yeah. Big Monster on Campus, all these different names. But um, anyway, yes, it was this cool little... Um, it was kind of, uh, you know, it was a bit of a ripoff <laughs> of Frank and Weenie, to be honest. Frank it was about and a, t- a teenage boy who, you know, is is creating a Frankenstein monster in his attic in, in you know, in, in Spielberg-esque suburbia. And the instead of, you know, bringing a dog back to life, he brings a kid back to life. And the kid is, is Ryan Reynolds. And uh, so Ryan Reynolds sort of plays the Frankenstein monster. He's funny. The, the, ki- the family name of the, the kid and his parents is the Steins. And um, uh, Matthew, um, oh, shoot. Matthew Lawrence. Thank you. Oh, God, thank you. Yeah, um, I just who I adore, Saturday, and I directed um, Matthew Lawrence and my Santa. So I'm like, oh, my God, I can't, if, I, if I can't remember his name, he's going to kill me. It's on one. It's on one of the Roku channels. I just watched it on Saturday. I, I, I'll look it up and I'll, I'll get back to where it's on, so people can check it out because I really yes. enjoyed it. But yeah, go ahead. Go and ahead. the parents are played by Shelley Duvall and Judge <laughs> Reinhold. I mean, yes. it's, it's an incredible <laughs> cast on this little tiny low budget film. And uh, so yeah, it's 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 fun. And there's one part that I always remember that just cracked me up. There, there's um, some teenagers like at a lookout, you know, and their pickup trucks and stuff, making out and drinking at night or whatever. And the camera is just sort of, you know, on a track rolling by, you know, two or three of these pickup trucks where kids are in the back. And this this girl and guy, just extras, are kissing. And the guy stops for a second 
and leans over the, <laughs> the edge of the pickup truck and throws up from, you know, having too much to drink. <laughs> and then he sits back up and goes right back to kissing the girl. <laughs> and because oh, the camera's no. just, just, just going by, you know, there's, it doesn't halt or anything. It's just this <laughs> little, you know, just little passerby, you know, drive by moment that just, it cracks me up every time. <laughs> What's really cool to me about that movie is that you have Ryan Reynolds, who's one of the most charismatic leading, leading men in, in, in movies now, 20 years later, kind of playing against type. Because he starts oh, yeah. out as kind of like this, this kind of this kind of nebbishing loser, heavy metal kid. Yeah, and he just, yeah, it's it's just really cool to see him playing that. And then uh, he accidentally gets killed when he uh, he goes to a party he's not invited to, and the guys uh, <laughs> knock him into the knock him into the empty swimming pool. But it's yeah. it is a very <laughs> cool little movie. Um, I, I'm I'm glad I checked it out. I'm glad I. I, I went through your IMDb and I started looking everywhere. Like what, what can I find? Uh, <laughs> especially the stuff I hadn't seen. I revisited the oblivion movies, which is the next ones that I want to talk to you about. Cause God, what a amazing, uh, you, uh, how did that, how did that come about? Uh, because it looks like well, the story was by Charles band. Was it all his idea? Or did you have a lot of input in the uh, creation of oblivion? No, what they, that, it was um i had done guilty as charged and acting on impulse with nancy allen um and then um i had a manager at in those days her name is venetia stevenson and she was also an actress she was in horror hotel with christopher lee and and uh she was married to um don everly of the everly brothers and oh, no kidding um you know, she she had quite a Hollywood history. Her mother was Anna Lee, who was in The Sound of Music and whatever happened to Baby Jane. Her father was Robert Stevenson, who directed Mary Poppins. Anyway, she knew Charlie Band, and she said, I want to introduce you to him. And so we went in for a meeting, and Charlie had, by that time, he had seen both of my first two films, Guilty as Charged and Acting on Impulse, and which he liked. And they had a film of Oblivion in development and quite far along. The script was done. They had character designs. They, you know, they'd had some artists do little renderings of each of the characters and what the costumes could possibly look like, that sort of thing. And, um, and so he gave me the script, Charlie gave me the script and said, Hey, you know, what you, you know, take this and read it and see what you think. And, and, and um, I'd love for you to consider directing it. And so that, I mean, it just came about really quickly slam dunk. Now, when we, once we got into pre-production, we were, you know, designing the Western town and everything, and it was starting to get, pretty expensive at that time charlie had a deal with paramount so we actually had some real money for a change um and i mean it wasn't real money in terms of hollywood but in terms of low budget films you know we had a budget and um and we were going to shoot it in romania and labor is cheap over there you could build sets it was the first time i'd gone to romania i later went for the elvira movie um and so, you know, we knew we could build this town, but, you know, we still had a budget and we had to be careful not to be too elaborate. Well, the first designs that we have were a bit too elaborate. And Charlie was saying, you know, oh, you're going to have to lose some buildings and whatnot. And then I said, listen, 
remember the three and four musketeers that Richard Lester did and they ended up dividing it into two movies. And, and I said, what if we write another script and do a sequel? Cause this is just begging for a sequel anyway, and let's shoot them back to back. And that way we can amortize the cost of the town set over two films. And Charlie loved that idea. And I think he had maybe done it with, I can't remember if transfers had, had done shot two films back to back at that point. It may have already been done, but um, that's what we did. And, and we, it enabled us to build the town exactly as we wanted it. And it was, it was fantastic. And we, um, and then when I, I was very much behind the idea of casting a lot of cool um, Julie you know, genre names so or whatever, like George her. Decay from Star Trek to play to play the town drunk and <laughs> Julie Newmar to play the Miss Kitty, the feline alien who ran the saloon, as obviously is an homage right. to her Catwoman days. And uh, Carl Stryken, who was Lurch in the Adams Family movies and the giant on Twin Peaks, would play the gaunt, the undertaker. And we had Meg Foster as the as the cyborg deputy and Erwin Keys and uh, you know just this incredible cast. Yeah, Andrew um, Divoff was another one. He Andrew Divoff, yes. Oh my god! And and Andrew played Red Eye in in Oblivion. He played his brother, his twin brother, yeah. <laughs> in Oblivion too. And then played Blackbeard in Magic Island. I mean, I just love the guy. You so even good. know it's him with all that makeup on. I guess it was the one eye. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, he, he's, he's, he's not <laughs> even. Yeah, you don't recognize him in the Oblivion films. However, in Oblivion 2, I gave him a, a cameo as another act, as another um, character in the Draconium. Um, where people come to cash in the the draconium that they mine um and isaac hayes is the is the guy behind the counter yeah. weighing it and and giving you know exchanging it for money well placed and, too he's funny and he and andrew divoff plays this this really you know crazy character who comes up to the window yeah. and uh but at any rate, he, you know, so we, it actually gets his face in there for, <laughs> for a, a few minutes. I mean, that cast is what, you know, a, a kid, you know, a kid, a teenage kid walking around the video store looking at boxes. That cast is what drew me to rent them in the first place because, yeah. you know, I, uh, you, you grow up a Star, uh, Star Trek fan and a Batman yeah. fan and all this stuff. And you start yeah. seeing, oh, my God, this you is so You know who cool. those people are. Well, exactly. And that's what, you know, again, that's my, that's my fanboy coming out. You know, I wanted my films, especially back in those days when I had much more control over casting than I do these days in the types of films that I direct for the Hallmark Channel or Lifetime, where it's cast, they're cast corporately. You know, I have, I have almost no say anymore, but back in those days, I just relished in, getting all the people that I wanted to see on the screen. And uh, it was so much fun to cast those films and, and, and bring in people that I wanted to meet, you know, and, and, and idolize. And it was, it was just great. That is, yeah. That, um, and, and also I didn't know until I rewatched them last week, because back when I had first seen them and even the first couple of times I'd seen them, you have uh, 
a cameo very early in each of them. You die right at the beginning of the second one. Yeah. <laughs> you, try, you try to rob, uh, rob Isaac Hayes. Or, yeah. No, you try to rob, well, uh, what happens in the second one, the, 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 my, my favorite of the two, of course, is the second one. It's a little more, it's a little funnier. In the first one, I'm just in one of those stocks where I'm obviously, you know, done broken the law or something. And when red eye comes into town, he, he breaks the lock on the stocks because he would like, you know, there to be, outlaws um raising hell everywhere and i run away and and that's it um in number two i sort of think it's the same character um it's i we called myself stogie joe in part two and i arrive at the at the tavern where isaac hayes is the bartender and i come in and i pull out a cigar and my sidekick that's what was you know strikes strikes up a match or whatever to light the cigar and isaac hayes points to a sign that says no smoking and i'm like i'm like yeah as if and i just keep uh, you know taking drags on the cigar and then boom i get shot in the back and we cut to lash played by musetta vander sitting at a table in the corner blowing the smoke off the end of the barrel of a pistol um and she goes those things will kill you <laughs> and then we cut back to isaac hayes and he's got a, chalk, a piece of chalk now and he's adding a, a swash to a whole row of uh, where it's obvious that they've you know killed off like a whole bunch of other people who smoked in the in the in the bar <laughs> That's what so, it was. It was an attempted robbery for some for some reason. I watched so many movies in like the last week that like I'm starting to get things confused. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, yeah, you have a similar joke in the first Oblivion where uh, when, when Red Eye uh, crushes like a little a little animal, then adjusts the population sign. Yeah, yes. the opposite <laughs> end. He he goes and crosses it out, and uh, and, and uh, that's what I knew. I was going to finish the movie. But I saw that scene where he eats to whatever that is. I, I yes. assume he ate him, but I knew it's just like, I'm going to keep watching this. This, this works. <laughs> I love them because they have such a great sense of humor and some of the set design at times, like you can kind of see how uh, your, um, your, your love of old monster movies kind of figures in. I got some Kevin and Dr. Caligari vibes at some points with the, with the town. And I don't know if that was intentional or not. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And even like but, the, 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 the undertaker's, place is shaped like a coffin you know and yeah. all, just all kinds of wacky you know tongue-in-cheek silliness and uh no we had so much fun with that and i got to do stop motion animation oh i know i forgot about that i mean that my cool. whole homage to ray harryhausen i mean you know with the giant scorpions and we the and in magic right. island the the kids film i did for charlie after those i you know, did a, a stone giant sequence. I mean, you know, it's just incredible. Love doing yeah, all the, that. Zachary Ty Bryan from Home Improvement. Uh, yes. And um, uh, French Stewart French, was in French that. Stewart. That, was, that was a really fun little movie. And from another third one I Rock from the Sun. You can almost tell you guys had fun making it, but the, how oh. well the chemistry came through with everybody on the set. Yeah. I mean, we had a blast on Oblivion and Magic Island. With Magic Island, we shot in Mexico in Ixtapa, Zihuatanejo, and it was just as much fun and just had an amazing, amazing time. Um, 
yeah, I love doing those those adventures, and and it was such adventures going off to these exotic places to make them. <laughs> and then uh, in the second one, you brought in an act, another actor who you ended up working with uh, quite a few times, uh, Maxwell Caulfield. Yes, Maxwell. Oh my God, I love him so much, and his wife Juliet Mills, yeah. who just yesterday um, turned eighty. Um, I saw the picture you posted. They look fantastic. They look incredible. And oh my God, they're just such a dream couple. I love them so much and, and have directed Juliet and a couple of things and Maxwell and several things. I did Oblivion 2. He was also in episodes of, of Strip Mall, the Julie Brown series on Comedy Central that I directed. And um and then he was in one of my Christmas films called I'm Not Ready for Christmas for the Hallmark Channel. I, I love the guy. I'd, I'd work with him more if I could. <laughs> but, uh, my, my sister-in-law, who is not into horror movies, uh, but she loves uh, watching a lot of those. That's one of her favorite Christmas movies. Oh, that's Hallmark. great. Everybody <laughs> loves those. Hallmark, especially around Christmas and the holidays, I thought. I've done about nine of these now. I mean, it's it's like a whole subgenre of my resume. It's 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 crazy. <laughs> I've noticed that a lot of the horror directors from like the the eighties and nineties that I grew up liking are now doing those because you're doing yep. them. David Dakota's doing them. Fred Olin Ray is doing them. Yeah, I think Michael Verratti is now writing some of them. I mean, yep. he's not Michael's. from back then; he's more contemporary. But yeah, yeah, and uh, Ron Oliver, yeah, a, a bunch of us guys are are in that world now. It's it's you know it's where the bread and butter is. You gotta you gotta work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I also do a ton of thrillers for Lifetime. And these, most of the guys you're mentioning also do, you know, a bunch of those yeah. too. Well, that, at least that's a little bit, a little bit more, you know, closer to the, uh, the horror world. Right. And uh, we can, you know, do all, do all the noir atmosphere and, and suspenseful stuff, which is, which is always loads of fun. Well, I just watched uh, The Nurse last week because that's oh. on uh... That's on uh, YouTube on one of the YouTube channels that has licensed that. So I just watched that last week when I was starting to research your films a little more. Um, and that, that was, that was again, a fun little thriller. And you, you got, you got the, you know, the, 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 the cliffside, uh, you know, the cliffside murder that, t- that opens the movie up. Yeah. So <laughs> kind of showing your, you know, your affinity for, for those older movies. I mean, it's got to be music, like- the music too. I, yeah. um, I, I, found this incredible composer, Nick Sewell, who, um, when I was teaching at the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts, he was going to the, to the film composing department for his master's degree, and he had scored several short films, and I kept, when we'd have these little festivals on campus of watching, you know, presenting students short films, and there was there were so many times when I go, God, the music in this is great. And then the end credit would come up and it was always Nick Sewell. And I'm like, I've got to meet this guy. And he was just brilliant. And uh, so I, I used him for that film and a bunch of my other films too. But that one we had so much fun with the, uh, the producers kind of gave us free reign and I temp scored it with, you know, Bernard Herrmann and John Williams and, you know, all the sort of classic, um, classical sort of styled uh, scores. And 
Nick just recreated it and just did this incredible score for it. Let's take a quick break because I hear some uh, delivery at the door and then recording. Are we good? There we go. It's back cool. on. Um, so we just uh, we just stopped talking about the nurse. So um, the amazing thing about talking to you is that you're you're going into stuff that I was going to ask you about. I know he's <laughs> answered pretty every question I was going to a- ask. So I mean, it just like we're just sitting here just listening, which is great. You know, it's, it's great. You know what? You got it all down. But I did want to ask you about one story, and it is kind of going back because I saw you on another interview, and it cracked me up so much. I believe you were on the set of um, uh, "Man with a Golden Gun," maybe was that uh, it? And then you were story. in the, you, it was uh, you were in the car with uh, yeah. Don't uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. don't 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 give it away. All right, okay, so you this can is tell what happened. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. it was a really cool story. So so. When I back in the when I was a teenager doing uh, editing and publishing my fanzine Bizarre, I had you know wanted to meet all all my horror idols and I'd managed to meet uh, Vincent Price as I told you earlier, but I wanted to meet Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and all the Hammer people and so um, I had conducted through the mail questionnaire interviews with Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Ingrid Pitt, and a bunch of them. But I really wanted to meet him in person. So when I graduated high school, I begged my parents as a high school graduation present to send me to London. And so I, and they agreed. And so I rode ahead to Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and everybody and saying, I'm coming. I want to, You know, I'd love to meet you and do a follow-up interview in person. And Christopher Lee wrote back, gave me his phone number and said, call me when you get to London. (laughs) So I get there, I call him and he said, I'm, um, I called him on, luckily on the weekend. He said, I'm working. So why don't you come to Pinewood Studios and we'll have lunch. And I didn't, you know, there's no internet. I didn't know what he was doing and, you know, I didn't want to keep him on the phone too long you know i was nervous and everything so i had no idea what he was up to i just went to pinewood to meet him for lunch well it turns out he was shooting man with a golden gun the james bond movie in which he plays the man with the golden gun he was the villain scaramanga and so he had been broken for lunch early so the dining room was pretty empty and and fabulous beautiful dining room and um we had lunch and we, I taped a new interview with him. And then um, he, then uh, people start filtering in for their lunch break, including all of the James Bond people, Roger Moore, Britt Eklund, Maud Adams, the director, Guy Hamilton, Hervé Villachez, who was playing Christopher Lee's sidekick. Um, and, and, you know, they're coming by the table where we are and Christopher is introducing me and I'm just like, my eyes are popping right out of my head. I just can't even believe all of this. And so then Christopher says, well, you know, they're going to be having, you know, busy with lunch for an hour. Why don't I give you a tour of the James Bond sets? (laughs) So, So I get a private tour of all the, all the Bond sets from Christopher Lake. Um, and he ends the tour at his lair, at Scaramanga's lair, where they're going to be shooting after lunch the rest of the afternoon. And we're walking through, and there's this little 
insignificant alcove that you barely see in the film. I think people just walk through it and it's, and you see it for a flash, but it has, it's lined with these glass cases of hermetically sealed collection of giant insects and giant butterflies and everything that, that the character Scaramanga collects. And I'm looking at these and I'm going, um, are these real? And Christopher stops and he goes, Sam, this is a James Bond film, not a Hammer film. <laughs> and, Hammer and film. It literally, his nostrils flared when he said <laughs> Hammer film, like there was shit on the bottom of his shoe or something. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, and, you know, I love Christopher Lee to death, but, you know, he kind of looked down on, on his earlier horror days. Uh. And he really wanted to work with the big boys in, on big major films. And to his credit, that's exactly what he accomplished. I mean, he went on to, you know, work with Spielberg in 1941, with Scorsese and Hugo, with Peter Jackson and all the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies and, and Lucas and this in the Star Wars films. And, you know, just, um, you know, he worked, and Tim Burton, my God, you know, and everything. But the irony, of course, is that all of those great directors yeah. loved Christopher Lee and cast him in their movies because of his horror films, because of his Hammer Dracula days. And uh, so anyway, it was just kind of funny that, um, but that's that was how Lee was. I mean, you would catch him in different moments where he would appreciate his his horror days a lot more. And, and deep down, I know that he did appreciate it, but he, um, but he really wanted to have that image of, you know, doing the A-list big movies for sure. Whereas Peter Cushing was kind of different. You know, he was, he liked being a big fish in a small pond and, and really loved being, you know, the star of these horror films and was, and felt very lucky and privileged to, to, you know, to have found that niche for himself. They just were very, very different in that way. Well, um, then Christopher asked me to, you know, invited me to stay for the rest of the day to watch the shooting. They did, did a few scenes, no shagging, no car crashes, unfortunately, but, um, but it was fun. I did, they did a dining room scene with Roger Moore and Britt Eklund and Christopher Lee and Hervé Villachez and everything. And at the end of the day, he said, um, do you want to share a ride um, back to London? And they, there's a Rolls Royce limousine from the studio. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. So I get in and Christopher Lee and Hervé Villachez are sitting in the back seat. And I sit, I do have to sit on this little fold down seat that's behind the chauffeur um, where I'm facing the two of them, where I'm facing Christopher and Hervé. And of course, if, I'm sure most of your listeners know who Hervé Villachez is, but in case you don't, he's yeah. the little actor from Fantasy Island who's always doing the plane, the plane. <laughs> and uh, anyway, <laughs> Hervé is now. 10 sheets to the wind drunk as a skunk <laughs> and we start to drive back to london and hervey starts to regale us with stories about all the prostitutes he's hired since <laughs> he's arrived in london <laughs> and he is using every foul you know word in the book and and going into details and um i'll say this as nicely as i can he he kept repeating the word 
pussy. Um, but with his, he had a very strong lisp, so it always came out pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and Christopher Lee started to giggle, and I started to giggle. And every time Herbe would say pussy one more time, <laughs> we just kept, we just lost it. And we were like doubled over laughing. And every time we'd compose ourselves, all Herve had to do, and he knew it, was to say that word one more time, and we completely fell out of our chairs. That's and a great story. It was so funny, and it was just so surreal because Christopher Lee is usually rather demure and rather, you know, Stoic. refined, and <laughs> you just don't think of him as howling hysterically, doubled over, and no, but especially, you, you know, my image of him as Count Dracula. I mean, it just is so contradictory to all of that, and so it was, it was very surreal. And when we dropped him off at his home, 45 Cadogan Square, I'll never forget it. <laughs> um, he, uh, we're pulling away from the curb and I look out the back window of the Rolls Royce and, and Christopher is literally just standing at, at the gate of his home, just doubled over laughing, trying to get it out of his system <laughs> before he has to go in and face his wife. And, and because I'm sure he does not want to have to tell her why he's, he's so, he's, he's so hysterics and in hysterics, but it was, it was crazy. It was wild. And just to show you how incredibly lucky I was, I mean, it's just the, the luck is just unbelievable. I get back to the hotel immediately. I want to go see Diana Rigg on in the West End performing on stage in Pygmalion where she's playing Liza Doolittle. And I want to interview her. Of course I want, I'm going to go to the stage door and see if I can meet her after the show. Cause I want to interview her because she played Vincent Price's daughter in theater of blood. And she was Emma Peel in the Avengers TV series. And she was in the James Bond film oh, on her yeah. Majesty's secret service. And I was a huge fan of hers. So I get to the theater. It, it was sold out for weeks but I was hoping that somebody might be selling a ticket out front or an extra ticket or somebody who canceled or whatever. And you, lo and behold, yes, there's a guy there holding up a ticket. I go and buy it. I go in. It's like the seventh row center, incredible ticket. And I'm waiting for the show to start. And I hear this very familiar laugh behind me. I turn around and it's Vincent Price. <laughs> <laughs> That and before so cool. I can before I can open my mouth to say anything, he goes, "Sam, what are you doing here?" Because <laughs> he remembered me from when I had met him before, and I, actually by then I'd met him a couple times. I had gone to a, a lecture tour that he had been in and reacquainted myself with him there at the stage door. But he remembered me, and and so I told him, "I'm here to. I'm hoping to meet Diana Rigg." And he said, "Well, you're coming backstage with us after the show. And by the way, have you met my fiance, Coral Brown, who's sitting right next to him? And she had played one of the critics in Theater of Blood, who he had killed. And he had met her on Theater of Blood. In fact, Diana Rigg was the one who introduced them originally. And uh, so they took me backstage and I met Diana Rigg and how could she say no when they're putting her on the spot and she agreed to do the interview. And I came back on a day when she was doing a matinee and an evening performance. We did the interview between the shows and she was fantastic and um, just incredible stuff. So 
Yeah, I mean, it's that day between Christopher Lee and Hervé Villages and Vincent Price and Diana Rigg and Coral Brown and Roger Moore. I mean, just like, I, could I have met more celebrities in one day? I don't think so. <laughs> oh, that's just a dream come true. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was nuts. It was nuts. And actually, Diana Rigg unfortunately passed away last year, but she's yes. in probably my favorite movie so far this year. She's... uh She's the uh, the landlord in uh, Last Night in Soho, which yes, I which have I yet to see that. Movie. Oh it my is god, fantastic. you have to see it! It's so good. It's so it's, good, and I've heard good things about it. Edgar Wright is is he also directed Shaun of the Dead and Baby Driver? I just think he's a it, he's, he's a he he is kind of. He excites me the way that Brian De Palma excited me back in the seventies when I was when I was young because he obviously is a huge fanboy. He loves yeah. these old, older films that he's always making references to. I mean, you it, it, you you may not have even noticed this, but of course it, it goes back in time in in Last Night in Soho and there's Thunderball on the in front of a movie theater and stuff. But as they're ro- breezing by. there's a poster for Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, the Amicus Portmanteau movie. And and I was like, yes. Oh, it's so cool. I just thought that was the coolest little Easter egg that he threw in there that if you're, if you blink, you miss it. But I saw it and I knew it was intentional. And uh, no, I I think it's a great movie and we don't want to give anything away, but Diana Rigg is not a cameo. She's a major character in this movie. And it was a great, great, was Game just of a great send-off for her. I mean, oh my God, it, gave, it gives me chills. And actually, I love that Dr. Terror's House of Horrors poster. I um, I actually have a, an original Spanish version of it with Peter Cushing with the tarot deck. It's yes. framed and it's in my storage locker in LA. I got to get out there and dig it out eventually and hang it. But actually, right yes. behind here is my roommate's poster of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. He's a big Edgar Wright fan too. So we went yeah. to see that like a week or two ago and I was just mystified by how unbelievably beautiful that movie is i i it, loved every second of it and yeah you're really right is. clearly a monster kid when you even when you see his uh his fake trailer in grindhouse for don't it references all the amicus and hammer films and all, all yep. you know the, the, it's i absolutely love that uh, loved everything he's done so far so he as far as i'm concerned he has he hasn't had a miss yet I'm no, I, I agree with you. I mean, he's just, I just, I just love the guy. And I, and I, you know, I just enjoy the enthusiasm that he has for the genre and, and for his fellow monster kids and all the Easter eggs that he's putting in there for us to find. And, you know, it, it's exciting. I, 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 I love seeing his films, even, even if he were to misfire, I know it's going to be an interesting movie anyway you know what yes. i mean it's just yeah. and it's the same with De Palma. i mean you know De Palma's had misfires but i always find them interesting in one way or another i mean there's just always you know fun stuff in there so was there ever any discussion with either christopher lee or peter cushing or diana rigg of you doing a film with them or did, did, was anything ever in motion that just never materialized i know you mentioned vincent price earlier Yes, yes. They, they, you know, I would have loved, loved, loved to have worked with all of them. There was some discussion of of adding Diana Rigg to the cast of the Vincent Price movie that I was doing to try to help um, raising money and stuff, but that that never materialized. And uh, 
but no, you know, it just, unfortunately those, you know, in trying to raise money for these little movies, a lot of those names by the time I was directing were either, you know, they just, they just didn't mean that much anymore. Um, you know, I, my first film didn't get off the ground till 90, till 1990. And, uh, so yeah, it's, and, and the fact that they were in England and I was making films back in those days, mostly in LA, um, it was too expensive to bring people in. You know, I would, right. I would cast all kinds of cool names, but they were, most of them were local. You know, we weren't flying them in. We were just basically saying, Hey, can you get in your car and come over here for a day and do a cameo or, or whatever. And that sort of thing. So, you know, had, had they all lived in LA, I would have certainly been, been trying to do that much, much more than, uh, than I was. We did try to get Christopher Lee to play the, the Vincent Price character in Elvira's Haunted Hills. Um, I don't think he ever saw the script or even knew about the, the offer. Um, his agent just said, no, he doesn't do those kinds of films anymore. And, you uh-huh. know, basically turned us down flat. And uh, yeah. which was very disappointing because I think he could have been I, Such an I, asset. knowing his sense of humor that he's got it there. You know, he I think he would have really had a fun time with it. And he knew Vincent. Well, they did. They did a yep, couple of right. films together. Um, Oblong Box and and mm-hmm. um, uh, what was the the um, no gosh, what was the portmanteau that had Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing. <sighs> Um, um, not Monster hurt. Club, but it was um, House of Long, House Shadows. Long Shadows. Okay, <laughs> we, we I was, was it. fixing to look it up because I was going yeah. nuts. <laughs> but at any rate, they you know they knew each other and 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 were big. You know they they loved each other and uh, and they also share the same birthday, <laughs> May twenty seventh. A um, day a day before Peter Cushing's birthday. Yes, Peter <laughs> no Cushing way. is the day before. It's crazy. It's crazy that they were all born on those days. Um, but at any rate, I, it would have been really fun. But um, yeah, that just didn't work out, unfortunately. I, also, I Peter, would have loved it. Peter passed away in like 93, 94 also. Yeah. So yeah, that would have been. Yeah, he was, he was quite elderly by the time I was getting my directing into gear. Um, so yeah. And Vincent didn't, Vincent passed away right around then too so you know there was no you know he was not around when he had already passed away by the time we did elvira's haunted hills cassandra had actually tried to cast him in the first elvira movie um elvira mistress of the dark as Vinny character i mean it was really written for vincent price but um, but he ended up turning it down cassandra thinks that his wife coral brown was a little jealous of Vincent's attentions to Cassandra <laughs> and also just it's a beautiful woman. It, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, but also felt that, um, you know, he, the, that it was a little r- r- more risque. I don't think that, I don't think Vincent or Coral fully understood that it was going to be a PG you know, movie. I think they thought that this very sexy woman with the 
with the cleavage and everything was going to, yeah. you know, that it was going to turn into, you know, more of an R rated. Quite funny though. I mean, I love yeah. her shows. I mean, I, we grew up on that because I was, I was a teenager in the 80s. Yeah. So I yeah. mean, we were there. Well, they, we used know, to have monster just... movie matinee out of Syracuse. Me and Keith talk about that all the time because that's where we got our love of horrors. My mother would turn that on and we watched yep. Bella Lagosa movies and we would watch all of the, you know, they'd have hammer films on. They would, you know, as it was, you know, back then, though, the, when they had them coming on regular matinee time, until I got a little older, I didn't know all the stuff that was cut out of those. Movies. Yeah, they <laughs> there was a lot a of stuff in there that's like, wow, this is not the version I first saw when I was 13. Yeah. <laughs> so, but exactly. I mean, it's, it, it, they're just great films and it must be awesome to have known those people. Like yeah. Vincent Price, a lot of people think he's just known for horror. I mean, one of his favorite movies, one of my favorite movies he's out, he made was a black and white with Jennifer Jones and Song of Bernadette. Yeah, he was so good in that. I mean, yeah. so, just excellent. I mean, it, it, he was he was a one of a kind person. I bet, and he was a great comedic talent too. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, he he had quite a quite a varied career, but you know he certainly embraced the horror thing in the same way that Peter Cushing did. You know, he, he was he was happy to have this niche and to be, yeah. you know, the king the king of horror. You know, that was uh, he was he was very happy about That's that. That's what made it so good. They embraced their part in it. They might not have won the big Oscars and all that, but yeah. they loved what they were doing, and that just shines through in all the productions. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you talk about me engaging with my fans. I mean, Vincent engaged with his, I mean, he always wrote, if you wrote letters to him, he would write back. Same with with Peter Cushing. I mean, they just, you know, were always incredibly generous with their time. And it, uh, you know, and it was an inspiration to me for sure. So um, you're you're known for working with probably you know, one of the probably two biggest horror hosts around right now. It's probably Elvira and Joe Bob Briggs are the two biggest ones. And then there's Sven Gulli and some others. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back when you were a kid, I guess they were more regional, like New York had Zachary, which unfortunately, you know, I only got to see very little of by the time I by the time I was born, South Carolina, I'm trying to think if there was anybody. No, I actually grew, I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina and went to college in South Carolina, Carolina. but um, in Asheville, no, our shock theater was just a low budget, nothing affair. There were no, there was no host. They just had a title card that came up shock theater and then they played the movie. Um, So no, I did not have, I did not grow up with that. And, and I regret that. And Cassandra Peterson had the same problem. She did not have a horror host where she grew up in, in Manhattan, Kansas. And there was, there was nothing there either. So, you know, we learned about horror hosts actually, you know, through Famous Monsters of Filmland. There'd be pictures yeah. of Zachary or Vampira or, you know, some of, some of the other local ones. But, um, yeah, it was a phenomenon that just that I didn't really know about. Um, you know, it hadn't experienced personally. I, I guess the other the other quick thing is um, I saw a story that you told on Facebook because, uh, like you said, your father owned uh, owned the theater, and there was a screening of uh, Bloody Mama where they sent down this <laughs> no name actor who's yes. in the movie. Yes, yeah, so, I don't want to spoil who that is. So go ahead. Yeah, so it's 1970 when, and so I'm like 14. And um, 
yeah, American International released this movie called Bloody Mama. It was directed by Roger Corman, and of it course. starred <laughs> Shelley Winters as the head of this this family of uh, of gangsters. You know, it's kind of you know Bonnie and Clyde sort of era, and um, and they sent around. Basically, they were sending around an old car that was, uh, you know, used in the in the movie, you know, vintage car from like the 30s or, you know, when the film took place and and sending one of the actors who played one of of Shelley Winter's sons in the movie who was, you know, she had she had trained all of her sons to to be bank robbers or whatever. And so. This guy shows up at our theater with the car to do photo ops with the local newspaper and, you know, whatever. And um, so I, you know, I'm excited to meet somebody and especially excited to meet someone who's been directed by Roger Corman, who did all the Vincent Price and Growling Home movies, which I'm so fanatical about. And my dad um, introduces me to him and then we take him out to lunch uh, at this fancy restaurant across the square and they required coats and ties and this person didn't have a coat and tie and luckily the maitre d had a loaner that they gave to him and and you know we have lunch and we're talking about roger corman and blah 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 and it was all really cool and i just wanted to ride off into the sunset with this guy to go you know get into movies and uh and then, you know, literally this is 70. And in 1974, uh, this guy wins the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in Godfather 2. And his name is Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I met Robert De Niro at 14 at my dad's theater. You know, it was just crazy. Just crazy. <laughs> Ironically, he had also he had really been discovered by Brian De Palma. He was in Greetings and Hi Mom, which are two of De Palma's earliest films. And the and, uh, and and was making those right around the same time that I met him. So it's just kind of weird that, you know, that, that there's this De Palma thing that was, that was, you know, leading us all in, in, in the direction of, you know, bigger and better things. <laughs> That's fantastic. And yeah, here, here he is, this unknown actor who's sent to do this little gig in, yeah. in a movie theater. And yeah, four years later, he's, and now he's one of the most iconic actors to ever live. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he, um, and he was, you know, he had to, he just drove off to go to another theater in another town. You know, he was like doing the whole circuit around barnstorming in North and South Carolina and went to a couple of my father's other theaters in other towns. I mean, it was just so crazy to think back on that now. <laughs> you don't get that kind of showmanship anymore either. No, no, you really don't. No, it was, it was, uh, it, that showmanship thing was, was such a different thing back in those, in those days. The closest you get to that now is film festivals or someone like, uh, someone like Lloyd Kaufman will go to all yeah. the different different cities that are showing his films, but generally, yeah, it doesn't really exist anymore. You no. get to meet filmmakers now. If you go to like the local, the local horror film festival, that's premiering something and you might meet somebody who 10 years from now is one of the biggest directors in Hollywood. Yeah. You know? But um, it's absolutely fantastic. So I guess the, the uh, unless Vicky has anything else she wants to ask, I guess the last question that I want to ask you, 
um, is for any fil- any young filmmakers who are, who might be listening to this or anyone who's aspiring to it. Uh, do you have any advice for them? Uh, should they come out to LA? Should they do things from where they are? What would you tell uh, someone who's just starting out? Wow, it's you know it's really it's really tricky. I mean, ev- everybody nowadays has a tremendous advantage over what I had as a kid. When I was a kid, if, if you're going to be making a film, you'd had to make it on eight millimeter. It cost a lot. It cost your entire allowance and then some to, get, to have three minutes and twenty seconds of silent footage that you'd have to send off to be developed, and there was no erasing, yeah. no no take twos, and you know. It, it was really hard. Nowadays, you everybody's a filmmaker. You've got it. You your cell phone. You you can make entire movies. Steven Soderbergh has made entire feature films on his iPhone. Um, so you know, j- I know they got cinematic everything on this phone. Yes, I mean, my daughter's going. How did you do such a good video of Ashford's my grandson's birthday, you know, happy birthday. Song. Yeah. I go, I put it on cinematic. I go, we had a cinematic happy birthday song. Exactly. It's beautiful though. I mean, holy cow. Yeah. So gosh, I mean, if you're an aspiring filmmaker, just get that iPhone and practice, practice, practice. <laughs> just make films as many as you possibly can all the time. Get your friends to act in them. These, you know, you can do everything with no budget. It's, it's, it's such a dream that I wish I had when I was young. And, you know, post those online, try, you know, try to raise your profile, uh, social media and everything. You've got to use that to, to get your work seen. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to come to LA, um, LA is very, very, very competitive. It's very expensive to live here. You're going to have to, you know, get get a job, waiting tables or whatever to be able to pay rent and that kind of stuff to keep yourself going. I think it's more important to use social media to raise your profile so that by the time, you know, so that when it feels like it makes sense to come to LA, then, you know, you already have, have some sort of profile. You've done some films that, that have gotten into festivals or, you know, whatever you should use all of those resources. Um, but um, the other thing that I always tell people is that whether it's actors or directors or whatever, if, if you're saying, well, I'm going to try to make it in the business, and I'm going to give it a couple of years. And if I don't, then I guess I'll just go do another job. My advice is if that's your attitude, don't bother. <laughs> it has to be an obsession that's mm-hmm. in your blood where you are thinking, I am going to be a film director. I don't care if I if I only make iPhone films for no budgets for the rest of my life, I'm going to be making films one after another from now until the day I die, even if I have to have another side job to pay the rent. That's the attitude that you need to have to in order to make it in this crazy competitive business. Right. You've got to be obsessed and on fire about it and nothing is going to stop you. Um, so, you know, if if that's if that's the passion that you have, then just pursue it. Just do it. You can totally do it for yourself. I couldn't do it for myself back in those days. I mean, you know, it was, you really had to have a lot of money to make my, when I made my short 
film double negative on 35 millimeter, it cost me $25,000 that I put on credit cards and had to pay off for years. And in, in today's dollars, that would have been, you know, probably 50,000 or 75,000, you know, you can, I could have done that on an iPhone for nothing. So you have the incredible advantage. I mean, there is, <laughs> there's a lot more competition because everybody else has that same advantage. So you do have a lot of other people who are doing the same thing, granted, but um, you've, you've just got to pursue it. You've just got to, to take the, the, the resources that you have with an iPhone and use it, use it to death. And, you know, it's the more practice you have, the better you're going to get at it the more variety of things you're going to be able to have to show people what you can do. And every time you're making a film, the actors that you meet, the crew, they're going to have contacts and, and other people that they've worked with. And, you know, you're just going to be able to network and, and work your way up and, and festivals are a great way to meet people. So you just got to do it. Just be in the game. Yeah, and one of, one of the major things about festivals, and I, I learned this way too late, is when you get there, don't worry about winning the award. Worry about going and meeting everybody else. Yeah. Um, and Networking. You hit networking. the nail on the head that networking is a big thing. Uh, most of my work, most any film work that I get now usually ends up coming from people that I met on other films. Um, I made a film years ago with uh, Linnea Quigley, Joe Estevez, Rob, uh, Robert Zadar, Felissa Rose, and Joe Estevez every couple of months someone will contact me because Joe talked me up to them. And even right now I just started something now because of it. So networking is a huge, huge thing. Um, I learned that way too late. I wish I would have learned that in my twenties because I was, I I, I was uh, one of those kids. I was like, Oh, well I'm talented enough that that, that, that people will notice me. No, people have to open doors for you. No, it's very true. You it's, it's, you've got to, you've got to network. And you can't let the rejection, you know, if you don't win the award you or, you know, you don't get picked up for distribution or, you know, whatever. Or if you're an actor, you, you don't get those, uh, you know, the, uh, you go to a lot of auditions and don't get the part. You can't let that rejection get to you. I mean, that's just part of the game. That is part of the business. You've got to get a thick skin. You've got to look at every single one of those as an opportunity you know, and, and use it to the best of, of your abilities for networking and meeting people and, and just, you know, taking little baby steps and being patient. Is there any other question that Vicky has? Uh, well, I was going to ask him a lot of questions, but he answered all of my questions. So <laughs> I didn't really have to do too much talking for the first time. <laughs> yeah, you wind me up. I'm the Energizer Bunny. Sorry. Oh my God, you're, you're a phone <laughs> made of a, information. <laughs> I made a similar joke when I was talking to Vicky right before we started the interview. Like, you just put. It seems with with uh, with you, we just put in the quarter and just enjoy the ride. Yeah. <laughs> I was saying it's like usually you know they they know what they're gonna say and it's just it's just great having you know. I mean, you, you, your your career spans decades. I know it's that possibly we'd have to have another whole two hours. To get more of your life involved in it, but you've done, you've achieved so much, you know, and you're, and it's great how you treat your fans. I mean, that does not ever go unnoticed. 
People oh, really that's appreciate sweet. Well, I, 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 I love my sandwiches. <laughs> I noticed that when you friended me on Facebook, it's like, oh, God, he really likes his fans. And that that's just really just great to see because not everybody reaches out as much. You know? Yeah, I, I don't understand that. I mean, you know, I, 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 I do what I do for my sandwiches. <laughs> and you, you've, you've had a hell of a career, man. It's, really? it's, been, it's been fantastic. And uh, I, I mean, probably the pandemic slowed you down. But as bit. far as I can tell, you're still a working director. So yeah, that's I've, got, I've got a couple of films that I'm Coming contracted to do. And, but they keep getting postponed because of the uh, pandemic. And, and hopefully they'll happen early next year. <laughs> Speaking of which, Sam's uh, Sam's toilet paper caper. That's another thing oh. that you did recently because you were trying to help raise money for the World Health Organization, and you did pretty well with that. Yes, it's uh, we've I've donated over three thousand um, dollars with the profits of this little uh, parody of a of a kids book. You know the little golden book story books that we all read as kids. Well, I did oh, this yeah. parody of one um, called Sam's Toilet Paper Caper, and. <laughs> Remember uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, how you couldn't toilet get toilet paper, paper was... anywhere? <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> I was like, I need to write a parody of this craziness of, of trying to find toilet paper. So, Oh, my God, um, it's excellent. <laughs> I got the, this illustrator friend of mine, Dan Gallagher, who is hilarious. And, uh, and we, you know, collaborated on this incredible little book. And we cast, we, we have all these movie references in the illustrations. We, we, we cast Peter Laurie as the, as oh, the supermarket wow. attendant. And there's an homage to Carrie and Sound of Music and Good, Bad, and the Ugly. And there's a reference to Julie Newmar as Catwoman. I mean, it's, it's, it's got all kinds of fun stuff in it. It's only 10 bucks. You can get it on Amazon. And all the profits go to the World Health Organization COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund. And I'm just really proud of it. Wonderful. So uh, anything you'd like, to, you'd like to plug right now before we go? Anything well, in the, the pipeline? Um, there's a, uh, I did a, a, a massive interview with Elvira in the new issue of The Dark Side, number 222, <laughs> which I see you have, Joe. And, uh, and it's half of it is on the making of Elvira's Haunted Hills, where we, we tell all the funny stories of making that movie. But the other half of it, I tried to think of questions that, that as an Elvira fan, I've never heard her, you know, I've read so many interviews right. with her and I've never heard her ask. And one of the things was, um, as a fanboy, she talks about Vincent Price all the time. We both do. But I wanted to know, had she met other horror stars and she had never really been asked this. And I asked her, I said, did you ever meet Christopher Lee? And she goes, Oh my God, no one's ever asked me that. Yes, I did meet him. And so she talks about that. I'm not going to tell you what it was, what it is. And, uh, and, and she talks about, you know, John Carradine and Barbara Steele and Martine Beswick and all this cool stuff that, uh, that you can't find anywhere else. And it's not in her memoir either. So um, you got to oh, check out this, this magazine. Also, I want to ask you about it. I want to ask you about Martine Beswick because she's in one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite yes. uh, Hammer films. She's in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Yes. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. She was also the second female lead in 1 million years BC. She has the yeah. wrestling match with yeah. Raquel Welch. And she well, was in I've... two Bond movies, Thunderball and... Um, from Russia with Love, you know, so it's one of the few actresses to be in two Bond films. 
no one ever, no one ever remembers anybody from one million years BC besides <laughs> but Raquel, Raquel Wells. Okay, That's, yes, it's you're a right. guy flick. Huh? But um, but Martine, I um, when I was doing Magic Island for Charlie Band, there's a three-headed tiki god that was done with this sort of puppetry. And I wanted three distinctive voices for the three heads. So I got Isaac Hayes, <laughs> Terry Sweeney, who was the guy who introduced me to Cassandra Peterson, who used to be on Saturday Night Live. And he has a really funny voice. And Martine Beswick, who has a really distinctive, very British, very dry, um, very sexy voice. And so the three of them, I gathered them. At that time, Martine lived in LA, which was very lucky because that's I, how I was, I was able to that, work with her. She's working for you and Fred Olin Ray and a lot of, and a yeah. Lot of yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And so so I gathered them into a recording studio and that's how I met Martine. And then we reconnected at Monster Bash in Mars, Pennsylvania a, a couple years ago, well, just before the pandemic uh, in 2019, I guess, um, in June. And reconnected, and we're just, you know, we're just cackling. I mean, you know, she's so, so great. I just absolutely love her to death. Such a, such a great woman, and so funny and, and sardonic, and ugh, she's a dream. Well, yeah, I, I kept saying that that was going to be the last question that I ended up <laughs> asking. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to waste your entire day because I'm sure I could just get you to talk about like old monster movies probably we, we can have probably another talk. two or three hours yeah. to pick your brains on that one because... and i'm sure you want to get on with your day so i'm gonna um, I, I think this is a great time to let you go thank you so much so uh, much pleasure love yeah, it guys yeah th- thanks for how you treat your fans thank you for shit yeah you 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 produced and directed a lot of movies that i grew up with so thank That's you for awesome. that as well so many, um, too many to name. They're all awesome. <laughs> and also, uh, anybody listening, do buy the, uh, the the Blu-ray to Elvira's Haunted Hills because it looks fantastic. I watched it when I first got it, then I rewatched it the other night with the commentary uh, track on, which you guys are hilarious on it. So, um, and uh, where can they find you on social media? I think you're on. I think you're everywhere, right? I'm, I'm on, I'm, yes, I'm mainly on, my favorite is Facebook because I write long posts and they yeah. don't let you yes, write you unlimited <laughs> amounts on, uh, on, certainly not on Twitter and, and very limited also on Instagram, but I, I am on all three, but I, um, but definitely check me out on, on Facebook. You're going to get the, the unedited version there. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again very much. Uh, awesome. Have a great day. Um, a great holiday so. season, too. Oh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Happy holidays, you you guys. Thanks for having on me. Your single Thank you very much. Bed. I want to hear Thank all you. about to get to toll off your chest. Ooh. I feel the tears and you're not alone. Oh. When I hold you, well, I won't let go. Why should we care for what they're selling us anyway? you want to do, won't you listen to the man that's loving you, your world keeps spinning and you can't jump off, but I will catch you if you fall, I can't tell you enough, I hate to hear that you're feeling low, 
Should we care for what they're selling us anyway? We're so young, girl, and you know You don't have to be there, baby You don't have to be scared, baby You don't need the plan of what you wanna do Won't you listen to the man that's loving you? Listen to the man that's loving you. Oh, oh, oh. 